Welcome to Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Relationships are probably where we spend the most time and the most energy in our lives. They can be the sources of our greatest joy, but they can also cause us the deepest pain and frustration. This podcast is about helping you connect a little bit better every day in your relationships. Welcome to episode 31 of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. I would love if you would take just a second to hit the subscribe button, leave a five-star rating, or a positive review for the podcast. This enables us to get excellent guests like the one I have for today's episode. Dr. Michelle Borba is an educational psychologist, a former teacher, and a mom recognized for offering research-driven advice called from a career of working with over 1 million parents and educators. Dr. Borba is a frequent Today Show contributor and the recipient of the National Educator Award. She is the author of over 25 books, including Unselfie and her latest book, Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. I am just thrilled to have Dr. Borba with us today. Welcome. I am so glad to be here. I, this is what I've been looking so forward to talking with you. Well, I have too. I told you in my email to you, um, my daughter's about to start high school, but when she started middle school, I started a little group of moms um, and we all picked about five or six books to read as our daughter started middle school so that we would be sort of a community of moms to help them kind of navigate it. And I had two older sons, but this was my first daughter going through the tween and teen years. Um, And of course, we read Unselfie in our group, and it was one of our favorite. And so I've been a fan of yours since then. I didn't have a podcast back then. um, But it really helped us guide our girls through these you know, really tough years. And now you have this fabulous book I'm holding up so you can see I've got all these tabs. I just loved Thrivers. Um, I love the research. I love that it's evidence-based. I love the stories. And then I love how you break down the practical tips for parents because I think parents are so overwhelmed today and you break down exactly how we can weave these characteristics. So I want to jump in. Before before we start, I want to tell you just how much I love it and how it oh, how- I, I am so appreciative. This is the kind of thing uh, an author just gets so excited. My smile is going from ear to ear because that evidence-based act activities that are simple to do. That was my real goal because we're so overwhelmed as parents, but you know, we do make such an enormous difference, particularly when it comes to building resilient kids. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You did it. You did it. Um, I'm in the process of writing a book. I've been in practice for 30 years and I look at this and this is the, this is the kind of book I want to write where people can, you know, I was in academia for several years and we do all the research, but that research means nothing if we don't get it into the hands of the people who need it in a digestible way. And you do that in this book. You know, thank you. I think the most important thing that I realized when I was writing Thrivers, and it took quite a while, I've written a number of books, but this Mm -hmm. one was researching forever, is that the science is out there. 
saying that thrivers are made, not born, that resilience is something we can instill. But I realized from reading so many parenting books out there, it's misconstrued. It's not said the right way. And so a lot of times what happens is we get overwhelmed thinking we can't do this. Oh, we can. It's not a, it's not one program. It's not locked into DNA. It's not your kid's temperament. It's teachable skills that we can weave in. Well, I said weave in. It's not like now we're going to do resilience building. Yeah. It's yeah. Block. Uh, throughout our entire uh, children's lifetime with us. It's an ongoing journey. And the outcome is a kid who can make it without us. And that's what we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear every day in my practice, they're not. You know, I have parents yeah. every day in my practice that have young adults that, you know, just aren't. They're really struggling with that. So I want to ask you, in the book, you identify the current situation, especially in privileged communities. And I'm actually really glad you made that distinction early on in the book, because I think you're right. I think um, in some communities, the problems look very different. But in privileged communities in particular, parents are often raising strivers, not thrivers. And can you talk more about that? Yeah, the research was coming out. First of all, I started working on thrivers when I realized one in five American kids was going to suffer from a mental health disorder. And then came the pandemic. The second thing is when I realized that they weren't thriving. uh, So where's the commonality? Is there anything? And, And it was Luther's work that kept coming out is the highest of the level here is that the privileged kids though they're extremely well-loved and opportunities galore. What was happening is when I started working, particularly in many of those schools across the U.S. and interviewing the the kids and the parents, they didn't want their kids to fail. They were so concerned about, uh, in fact, one dad said, I know I'm probably not doing it right for him, but he's going to be with me just a little bit longer. And I want to keep him into a little bubble because there's so much bad stuff out there and I don't want to expose it to him. I'm going, wow, he's going to get this rude awakening. In fact, the kids, when I interviewed them, that was the mind boggling one. I got to interview a hundred kids coast to coast, one-on-one for an hour each. And I can't tell you how many kids, one kid off his way to Ivy League said, I said, what are you worried about? And everybody else would said climate change or terrorism because I'm worried about flunking life. My parents have done everything for me. I said, you're going to Ivy League? He said, yeah, but I don't know how to do a checkbook. I don't know how to use the microwave. And he says, I'm really struggling. So the stress level was going up. But the other thing, now that came the pandemic, we realized it's an uncertain world. It's If not a pandemic, who knows what the next thing is. Thrivers are kids when they're faced with adversity, don't give up. They find a way over it, around it, or through it because they've got what we now know, according to science, are protective buffers that they've learned along the way, like problem solving or Mm -hmm. a growth mindset or empathy for the other person or just amazing little commonalities that they seem to have. It's ordinary things that they're learning. That, yeah. are, that that I put in through Thrivers. But the amazing thing is like prayer and books and mm-hmm. problem solving that they learned in a family meeting are the things that actually help get them through. They don't have to have all of those, but boy, they got to have something. So the yeah. push comes to shove, they don't quit or give up, which is kind of like what a striver does. They get halfway there, but they don't go the whole nine yards. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you think that because I, I ask myself this question a lot because I see it. I'm in a pretty affluent area of Houston. In fact, you you don't mention it by name, but I have a feeling I know what school you visited oh. here. I, you know, I, well, I'll ask you later. But um, I so and that that's my clientele. And I, 
you, you're right. They have love and they have opportunity and they want what's best for their children. But I think it's fear. I think when oh, parents- Oh, I, I do too. Yeah, it's parenting from fear. And I guess, you know, I didn't really plan on asking that, but that's what I love about these conversations is how do we kind of talk parents off the ledge of, because the the things they're not teaching their kids, that perseverance, that- way to thrive is because they're parenting from a place of fear. And I tell my parents all the time, you know, and you and I had a little conversation before this started, the only way our kids grow, the only way is when they face problems and when they face adversity. And like you said, they could be speed bumps. They don't have to be huge problems, but how do we get parents to kind of understand that and let go of the fear? I I think, when I talk to parents, and I do this almost daily, the yeah. most important thing is that when I begin to describe what resilience is mm-hmm. and that it is teachable, that we need to add it to the plate, we've done a heck of a job of going for the cognitive side of our kids, that they yeah. are smart, well-educated. Oh, my gosh, their GPAs of 4.0s or 7.3s, and their yeah. IQ is actually rising. Don't tell the kids, but they're actually rising, and they're yeah. higher than ours <laughs> right now. But what they first they don't realize is that resilience is something that can be learned and taught. That's the aha moment. Second of all, when we start talking about, okay, now think about your own childhood. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up, what did you need? Now think about getting to the shoes of your kid. What's different about today's world than you were growing up? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times there's this aha moments that go, yeah, it's a little more uncertain, don't you think? And do we think that what we're doing right now is really going to help them? become their own personal best. Mm -hmm. And then when we start sharing the stats, I said, you know, too often we don't think it's our kid. It's the neighbors. But when we start looking at the the statistics about our children, the fascinating thing is even during the pandemic, we're discovering that many of the kids we're talking about right now have rest their whole accolades on their high GPAs, all of their club memberships, their president of this, 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 this. Now all of a sudden it's not there for them. And they're the ones that are struggling. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I wonder if they're having fun or they're just checking off those boxes, you know? And I know when you talk to them, you know, a lot of them said they don't. And in the book, you give several examples of kids who said, I don't really have time to do the things I like because I'm so busy doing the things I'm supposed to do to get into the good high school or to get into the good college or get the scholarship. Yeah, I think the first thing is maybe the most rude awakening to a parent is, okay, we put all your time and energy into getting them there. Pat yourself on the back. They did. You dropped them off. But did you know the number one time when a kid is most likely to drop out of school his entire life is end of freshman year, first semester of college? Mm -hmm. They're coming back. When I talk to Ivy League counselors, uh, tons of them, in fact, I did a keynote for 2,500 of them, and I said, what's different about today's kid? And they said, it is a different kid. The number one descriptor they said was empty. They're Mm -hmm. arriving, they've got it all, but they're not prepared for life, and we're running out of counseling uh, services for them. Yeah. They don't have the coping skills. And I'm sure you're identifying with mm-hmm. that one. Uh, but back to the kids. So when we start interviewing the kids and saying what's going on, and I said, so what do you do in your spare time? And the first thing is they look at you like, what is spare time? <laughs> and then the second thing is, what are your hobbies? And they look at me like, what's a hobby? And seriously, a group of middle school kids outside of, outside of San Diego said, hobbies? What's a hobby? Now, here's the point. I know that you can't do all day long on your hobby, nor can we do all day long on your hobby. But 
first, when we look at all of this, I started researching and writing this book when I was looking at five studies that were doing longitudinal of cohorts of really hundreds of children, and they followed them for like 40 years. Emmy Warners was amazing in the island of Hawaii. And she dealt with kids who have faced extraordinary adversity. We're talking real adversity, homelessness, sexual abuse of schizophrenic parents was Norm Garmisi. And halfway through it, she said, gosh, there's a lot of these kids that are making despite it. But why? What Ann Matson discovered, it was ordinary things that were what she called were creating magic for the child because the parent had given it to them or woven it in or because the parent didn't have the parent there somebody Mm -hmm. else had instilled these other little simple things so maybe the first thing is look at what bill damon is saying they're arriving to our best and our best stanford and only 20 percent of them have a sense of purpose over their life they Mm -hmm. don't feel their life has meaning and i think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a steady rise in stress and depression and maybe it's the first step to just this conversation or as a parent to stop, pick up an index card and say, what do you think your kid's really going to need? Don't just look at getting into college, but beyond yeah. that. And when I chose the seven strengths of thrivers, I was looking at not only the seven most highly correlated that raised the thriver or the kid who's who's got the resilience, once we knew that this stuff is teachable, that are more likely to reduce the mental health. But I also realized that parents are reading this going, yeah, but he is in school. Okay. The bottom line then the best news is these are the same seven traits that's going to help your kid become a better learner and a peak performer. So it's not either resilience or classroom. I think we've gone this, we keep going on the balance scale, one or the other, and we keep tilting back and forth. It's both. And it's yeah. a balance between the two. We've just been too much onto the cognitive hype side and not realize yeah. the social, emotional, whole kid is really matter. And that's why the whole book is set up by heart, mind, and will. What are the strengths yeah. that build all three of those? Because that's yeah. going to be what our kids are going to need. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I want you to identify the seven characteristics in just a moment, but I wanted to tell you as I was reading them about half my practice is parenting, coaching, and, and, and about 30 or 40% is marriage or relationship. I work Mm. with couples and, you know, these seven skills are also the things that make relationships work when you have not only they make relationships work, the fascinating thing I was, I was at MIT Multimedia Lab, the best of the best, most amazing ones. They said, these yeah. are all the seven things that make us, that's what we're looking for in employers. That's what yeah. we're looking for for creativity and creative minds. Our best and the best have these. Not necessarily relax. Do they need all seven? Though the more they have, the better. It's a rare kid or a rare adult who has all seven. But what we're discovering is that too often we're just going for one of these traits thinking that alone is going to make it. When I, along the way, discovered my real aha moment is any pair, any two traits together, and and it creates what I call uh, a multiplier effect. It amplifies them and makes them into superpowers. So just keep realizing this is a journey. It's a parenting long-term haul journey. It's not we're going to do this in the summer, but we're going to keep on going until uh, we realize our kids have the strengths to really help them thrive. Yeah. And you do a great job of that in the book of saying this one pairs with this one, you know, and they have this multiplier effect. So tell us what the seven characteristics are. Oh, number one is confidence, but it's not that one, the type that you need, uh, uh, you know, the trophy. 
It's right. an internally driven understanding of who I am, who I am. It's knowledge of your strengths. And that strength seems to give you the passion to be able to stand up and be able to handle life yourself. So it's really self-awareness. And that seems to be the core because the rest of these can stand up to that confidence level. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is empathy. Uh, thrivers think we, not me. We mm -hmm. do know that all of the work on resilience says kids have to have that social competence element. It doesn't mean they have to be most popular and have 50,000 friends, but they have to be able to have the basic social skills to be able to resonate with another human being. Uh, and particularly in today's global world, because these kids are really more open to all people, all diversity, and that's what our world is going to thrive on. Third yeah. one is self-confidence. Name somebody who says that isn't important after a pandemic. That's mm -hmm. the ability to put the brakes on your impulses so you can think straight and self-regulate. Uh, it's a coping skill. Uh, what most teens told me is, yeah, we're learning this stuff, but we're only learning it like it's on a worksheet. And you got to give us a lot of stuff so we can figure out what works for us, not what works for my mom or the teacher. And then we got to keep practicing it till it becomes yeah. us. So that's the self-control. Control, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it's a really hard thing today. Kids are very impulsive, I think, with this instant gratification that we get from social media and video games. And yeah, okay. So what what's next? Oh, love this one. Integrity 101. And the reason for it, everybody is, what the heck does that have to do with thriving? Well, a lot of times a kid is faced with a mental adversity or a peer pressure, or is that right or is that wrong? And so what happens if you have a strong moral code of whatever it is that you stand for implanted inside you, you don't wiver and waver. You go, I got this. This is what I stand for. And you can move ahead. It's not that having to ponder it all. What we've got to be able to do, because who knows when that adversity comes and the challenge comes, these are kids that move ahead. Then comes, oh, my favorite, curiosity. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how strong curiosity had to do with resilience. It turns out that thrivers are open to life. They're open to people. They're open to things. And so when the adverse situation comes, they don't go, I can't do this. I give up. They go, okay, it's a problem. Let me find a way around it or through it. They're creative problem solvers. They're yeah. not Einstein's or Picasso's, but mm -hmm. they just have this ability to know I got it. And mm -hmm. they, as a result, they've done a lot of brainstorming and nobody's been rescuing them along the way. Mm -hmm. Then comes perseverance. That's the one every parent wants to know. How do I get them there? Because their motivation yeah. is tanked. Well, you can't get there without a few of those other preceding ones. But that that perseverance kid is a kid who keeps on going and doesn't need the, the gold star and the trophy to do it. He's driven internally. Final one is hope and optimism. I got this. Not he's going to be a Pollyanna, but he's got a reality base and he keeps pessimism in check so he can find a way through. All of those are teachable. That's the part yeah. that's just Wonderful. And the other thing that's amazing is that I discovered when I was doing uh, freshman orientations for kids that many of the schools are now realizing when kids come in freshman mm -hmm. year, first mm -hmm. week, they're teaching these kids some of these skills because mm -hmm. they're so low in it. Tufts, um, Stanford, Yale, yeah. UP. Uh, it's Resilience Week. I'm going, why are we waiting too late? Fascinating stuff. You know, just as you said that, I hadn't really thought about this, but my kids went to um, an IB, International Baccalaureate, yes. um, 
great school here in our neighborhood, a neighborhood public school in Houston. And um, the IB learner profile, I don't know all of them, but like risk taker is one of them, creative thinker. There are a lot of these they, skills. They align right? perfectly. I've done a lot of work with those schools and keynoting them. And when I look at their 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 skill set, I'm going, we are just aligned perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize it as that I was reading, but as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, those are all the things that, um, and you're right. It's not like they say, okay, in fourth grade, we're going to learn curiosity, but through from kindergarten through fifth, they do that. And they do this exhibition project at the end I of fifth love grade. Exhibition yeah. project. That, that's chapter. You're going to see an exhibition project in chapter two with, with yeah. um, Barbie Monty. Amazing on how she taught empathy. Oh, yep. and the kids bought into it so much. For those who are listening here, an exhibition mm. is what she did was each year she asks her students when they come in, what's something that concerns you? What's the mm-hmm. problem? Now, there's curiosity. So yep. it's like she's multiplying it all together right there. And they spend the first month trying to figure out what are some issues out there that concern us? Well, the kids came up with empathy. And mm-hmm. then what they do is they start researching why it matters. And then they start interviewing people. So mm-hmm. I was Skyping with these kids and their first question is, do you know that empathy has dipped 40% in American kids? Don't you think parents should worry? I went, oh, you guys are yeah. wonderful. But yeah. the bottom line is because they bought into it so much and they understood it, they were researching it. That was really the, there's three kinds of empathy. A is affect. That's the kid who watches Bambi and is a basket case. You can see it on their face. They're so upset and oh, how wonderful for that child. But because your kid isn't crying through wonder and and Charlotte's web, doesn't mean he doesn't have empathy. Maybe he has the other side. The second one is C, cognitive. And that's what Barbie Monty's kids were doing. They were understanding empathy, trying to get into the shoes of the other kid. But here's the best line. All year long, they were studying it. They were finally understanding it. They got it. They were doing plays to present to their parents going, this is why it matters. But I asked Barbie, I said, hey, has there any any parents said to you this matters? Or, wow, thank you for it. She said, yeah, I took my daughter out to lunch And I was all excited to take her out to lunch. We walked by a man who was homeless and the daughter said to me, can we please give this man our lunch money, mom? He needs a lunch. Let's buy the lunch. And we gave the lunch to the man. And the mother says to the daughter, what was that, sweetie pie? She says, oh, mommy, that was compassion in action, which is actually the B part of empathy, moving the kid to behavior so he does something. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that chapter, but it's funny when I read that story, those stories, I didn't really think about the exhibition project that my own kids did at school. And I have to tell you, because I think you'll appreciate this. My oldest son is 23 and he, we moved here in fifth grade. So he joined the IB school in fifth grade. So he didn't get the whole gamut. My other kids did, but his project was um, they had styrofoam, trays in the cafeteria that they threw away every day Uh and my son hated that so he did he really studied and interviewed people how to get sustainable trays and and how to fund a dishwasher I won't get into his whole project but he's 23 and guess what he's getting his master's degree in environmental science and sustainability and energy resources all right, here's some here's some points about all of this. Number one, for any parent, 
it doesn't mean that your kid isn't doing an exhibition project that he's not going to thrive. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you are going to discover that there's wonderful things once you realize these seven traits that your school or clubs are doing from Odyssey of the Mind to robotics to yeah. knitting. That's learning a hobby that it all become the one thing that every thriver possesses agency. They're the controller. They're driving themselves. And you, what you said is that inner purpose. That's what helps our kids thrive. And I think the reason that so many kids say that they felt empty is that they were driven from someone else and they didn't have that who I am. And so it was tanking. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote down because you said you were very intentional in your language when we talked about confidence. and But it, it's really threaded throughout all of these characters. You said that a child knows who I am. And I wrote down not what I am because yes. our kids now are the rank, the number, yes. the position yes. on the team, uh, you yes. know, what, however they placed in the last competition. And you're right. We have to, and it is, it has to be all intrinsic rather than all these external yes. rewards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I think that's exactly it. You'll see the quotes from kids along the way that I kept pairing them through. The one that just hit you with a, like a knife through your heart is we feel like we're being raised as products and test scores, not human beings. Yeah. And another yeah. kid said, you know, we're just missing. I remember sitting with a group of middle school kids and I said, why do you think you feel so empty? And it was a leftover puzzle from a kindergarten uh, groups of children. And there were some puzzle missing pieces that they hadn't finished yet. And kids go, well, that's the problem. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, look at the puzzle. You see, they're missing pieces just like we are. I said, what are you missing? We're missing the human sides. How yeah. do you become a good human being and get along so we can drive ourselves? Oh, I love that. Well, you talk about integrity in the book, and I love that chapter. Um, I know my kids tell me and my clients tell me that, you know, that the statistics are staggering about how many kids cheat in school. And I particularly love the story of Mia and how she oh, learned. Integrity. I love Mia too. I remember that. And as soon as you say Mia, she's one of my favorite kids. I loved interviewing these kids. But Mia came from Florida and it was a group of uh, high school teachers that I was sitting there in the school saying, okay, so who's the kid I should interview? And they all said, oh, go interview Mia Dunn. She is absolutely a gold mine. Find out how she was raised because we never had a kid who has such extraordinary strong moral compass. She graduated a little bit. So go find her and figure it out. So I found her. I said, okay, every teacher wants to know how the heck you ended up with such a strong moral code. And she laughs and said, oh, it was how I was raised. I said, okay, please do tell. This is so simple. It's so textbook perfect on how you raise conscience. And so every parent, you can do this this weekend. She said, we started when I was six. My parents said, come on down to the family room. And there was these huge marker pens and, and poster boards all over the floor. We didn't have a clue what was going on. But my dad said, okay, have a seat. We're going to figure out what kind of family we want to be who we want to be remembered for by or called by other people. What yeah. a great question, but they involve yeah. the kids. So yeah. dad said, there isn't any right or wrong answer, but let's just brainstorm. And mom's going to write down the word. So Mia said, and pretty soon the whole charts were filled up with like respectful and kind and caring and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Until dad said, okay, so what's the most important, whatever we choose as a family, that's who we're going to be. And we all mm -hmm. chose honest. Okay. So I said, so how did you remember it? She said, well, we, our last name's Dunn. So dad turned it into the honest Dunn family. I went, well, that's pretty easy, but 
How'd you remember that you were the honest son? And she said it was impossible not to. My mother must have said it 50 times a day. She'd drop us off at school. Remember, we're the honest duns. Anytime she disciplined, remember that we're the honest duns. Would that be an honest dun? We'd be watching TV. They're honest duns, you know. They said it so much, we became it. Oh, I love that. And that's yeah. what we may not be doing nearly enough. You mentioned that the character is going way down with the kids yeah. and the kids aren't being such great uh, examples of character, but look at the parents. We've just yeah. got done with varsity blues where the parents yeah. did a cheating scandal that was amazing yeah. on buying their kids way into Ivy league. And every kid was watching that one yeah. going, how yeah. fair is that for me? I'm doing it the honest way. So right. we got to take it up. Maybe the first thing that's the simple thing. That's what I'm looking for of trying to help parents realize that there's dozens of ideas and thrivers. And if you tried them all, your kid will never let you read another book. So find <laughs> a couple of things that work best. But the easiest thing is sit down with an index card and say, how do I want my kid to turn out? What are the yeah. values that matter most to me? And it may be different than your parenting partner. That's okay. Now you've got two values. Now pass them on to grandparents, pass them on to great aunt Sally. We got to shrink the village. Because if the real big community out there isn't doing it, who are the kids going to look up to? And it's got to be us. We did this. Um, it's funny because this is, I'm writing about this currently. We did this. I was on bed rest with my oldest son at the end of my pregnancy. And so I, I had been a professor and I was kind of bored, you know, um, sitting in a bed when I was used to researching and teaching all day. And we wrote down our values and we wrote down um, ways that we wanted to instill those in our children and at the time we were expecting our first son and ways that we would model that and ways and kind of family rules. And so like one of them, my husband said, I really want our kids to have a strong work ethic. And so we thought about that, like, what will that look like? And we decided one of our family rules was that when you're 15, you get a job, any kind of, you, you get to pick the job, you get it. But, but we kind of, we started that when I was pregnant <laughs> and just kind of wove it in. But I don't tell that story to brag or anything. I, did, I don't know how it happened. It, it, it was just kind of, you know, I was on bed rest. I was thinking and kind of being a planner. But I can see those characteristics that we, those values that we talked about early on. Yes. Did we get every one of them? No. But did we get no. enough? You know, but well, here's the question I get a lot is, um, is it too late? You know, my kids ah, 10, ah, 14, how do I start this now? Because yeah, not everybody was on bed rest and had that idea at that moment, or we dropped the ball. There are years that are so crazy, busy and hectic, or there's a pandemic and we don't do a lot of this work. So how do we pick up the ball or how do we start when our kids are a little bit older? Well, first of all, I guess other than the fact we all need bed rest, but we can't do it. <laughs> what happened to you that was golden is that you can't get to any of this stuff unless you push pause and yes. think for a minute. So yeah. everything I'm talking about and you're talking about is intentional. It's yeah. taking a pause button to not be the verb as a mom, but be more the noun. Okay, now I'm just going to be present and I'm going to say what's going on. And maybe it's a one month every month of five minute reflection of how are things going. Number two is it's never too late because if it was too late, the entire counseling industry would go out of business. It's not too late for us. It's not too late for them. And yeah. it's not too late when our kids come home. When you want to talk about integrity, there's three E's that always matter because this is an amazing piece of research again by Samuel Oliner, who was rescued as a kid at age 12 by a perfect stranger named Bowinda. 
it, during the Holocaust in Poland. He says, now, why did this person risk her life to save me when my parents and all my siblings died going off to a death camp? And what he did turn out to be a social psychologist and spend his whole life interviewing rescuers. What do they have in common? And he discovered integrity and empathy were P on the, on the really key. How did they turn out that way? Three E's. Three E's kept coming up that are so simple. One was example. Every time I watched my mom or dad, she exemplified the kindness. She was and breathed kindness. So they saw it. Your kids can see it when they come home from college. Are you yeah. spreading it? Number two, it was expected. Kind of like the Dunn family. In this yeah. family, we are the honest Dunn. So what are you doing? No, no, no. The moment your kid crosses the line on discipline, best moral discipline is review your expectations. Was that being an honest Dunn? But the third thing is the experience that your son had. That styrofoam, it has to be an experience that moves him. In fact, one of the, the most mind-boggling things, when I say mind-boggling, was interviewing dozens of kids on how they became what I would consider a change maker like your kid. That, mm -hmm. that moment that, what was your transforming moment that got you to be, want to go out there and you know, like the Greta, you know, yeah, Greta yeah. of the world. Center, and yeah. what they discovered is always, she watched a video in, on in her classroom. Yeah. It was one video that mobilized her heart. Well, Nathan, age nine, said, he was nine at the time. He was older when I was interviewing him. said, it was in the, I was in the back of the car with my mom. And I, it was a really cold day. And it was raining. And I saw this man who was just lying on the street so cold. I said, Mom, can we stop the car and give him daddy's overcoat? Well, bless the mother, because she did. She watched him. He gave him the overcoat. He said, it was a look in that guy's eyes. He started to cry a little bit. And he said, thank you. And all of a sudden, I realized, wow, I'm a caring kid. I got back in the car, and I just kept staring out of the rearview mirror. And then by the time we got home, mom, we got to find some more overcoats. They were run. They ran out of overcoats. He got all his neighborhood kids to do it. But notice something that was driven by the child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm was an experience that the the parent allowed but now it's active in fact one kid told me the best way to teach empathy you know you got to make it a verb I said what do you mean he says well it's not like you it's a worksheet or a word of the month you got to see it and feel it in order to get it they yeah. were using uh, a roots of empathy baby who came into the classroom once mm -hmm. a month and they were learning to read emotional language from Clara the baby and wow. she said, Clara's teaching us empathy. I said, no, I don't know, honey. I think you're the one that's got it. You really yeah. are getting it because you're transferring it. But yeah. it's active experiences. You know, um, when you talked about kind of how the Dunn family sat down and talked about what kind of family we did, I know I have a lot of teachers who listen to this podcast. And my husband just left the oil industry after 30 years. And he is a teacher for the first time at 58 this year. He's teaching sixth grade math in an Aww. inner city school. Um, and he loved, he hasn't read your book yet because I wouldn't let him because I was, you know, digging in it for this interview, but he's, <laughs> he's got dibs on it next. And he wants to, he wants to bring it to all the teachers at his school. He's at an inner city charter school with very low income kids who, you know, maybe have one parent at home. Some of them are homeless. Um, and he said, you know, Kim, what, what can I do? But, you know, he, they could do what the Dunn family did, right? At the beginning oh, of a- Oh, 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 oh. In fact, that's a, I just dealt with um, 500 teachers from the Philippines. 
And it was mm -hmm. the most amazing Zoom. They asked the exact same questions. Our kids just don't have this stuff at home. What can we do? Create a class mantra. You brainstorm yeah. as, a, as a class. Who are we? And what happens as a result? Or what another teacher did that I love is every week, she came up with a different quote that resonated with kids about kindness or caring. And then every throughout the day, just like you can do as a family, throughout the day, what she also did was have them stop and say, okay, everybody all together now. And they'd say the quote again. By the end of the week, they'd all memorize one quote. But what she did was one step further. She, they had one demand as a class, and that was nobody leaves this class until by the end of the year, you've got your one quote that's who you are that's going to mm -hmm. define yourself. Uh, I've seen the same thing with class mantras uh, that are wonderful, that actually help to build optimism. And it's it's like, we'll get through this. We're mm -hmm. okay. We got this. Because what you need when you get to that final trait is unless you get that, Navy SEALs taught me this. They said what they do right before they go into battle, can you imagine, it's rewiring their brain, is they mm -hmm. actually come up with a mantra to say so that they chunk the fear. Meaning, yeah, our goal is to get through the whole battle, but we got to get through the first five minutes. And sometimes it's absolutely overwhelming. So we come up with a mantra and I looked at him and they says, I know that sounds touchy feely, but it's powerful and it works. The mantra is I got this or mm -hmm. cool down or I'll get through it. And every kid needs that mantra right now. Parents, the simplest thing that we can be doing is saying that mantra like it's our mantra. I got this. I'm frustrated. I'll get through it. You say it enough. Your voice becomes your child's inner voice and your kid will begin to copy that how powerful that is but yeah. if we don't help that child learn to curtail that pessimism it becomes permanent pervasive and whoop there goes the depression up which is exactly what's happening with our kids across the country and oh, us yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah it's it, it i've never seen it like it is now um so in the chapter on perseverance, you reframe mistakes in a few ways. I love this, um, you know, like they're not bad. Don't call them that. I think this is so important for parents to do because so many of the kids I talk to and I know you talk to, that's their biggest fear of making a mistake. So can yeah. you suggest some ways we yeah. change the way we think and yeah. talk about mistakes? Because we have to change the yeah. narrative. Oh, we do. I love that changing the narrative. Number one is we got to realize why it matters. And mm -hmm. there's every single one of these things we're talking about right now is so science backed and proven. I mean, Carol Dweck spent years in classrooms mm -hmm. and she discovered something that those kids who have what's called a growth mindset that realize no matter the mistake, if they realize they just keep working on it and get through it, and keep putting the effort and the ideas into it and not be so worried about the out of uh, what do I get instead yeah. of how hard I'm trying, that'll make a difference. So your narrative change, first of all, you allow mistakes in your household. You've got to, because what you do instead is say mistakes are learning opportunities. So what you learn from it, or you can also another narrative. So what are you going to do next time? Or another mm -hmm. narrative is I had a piano teacher that drove me crazy as a kid. His name is Mr. White. And what you do is you, you do the whole darn, uh, whatever it was, you Mozart. By the time you got to the last bar, if you made a mistake, you had to start all over again. Mm. Now, what happened is I just kept worrying about the mistake the entire time. So I hated music. Then came Mrs. Thompson. She had a whole different outlook. And it was, let's identify your stumbler. The one little thing that gets in your way, Michelle, she called it a stumbler, which I love. 
You can call it and you can name call it. Maybe it's a nickname. What's your stumbler? Or what's that little thing that that little kids come up with their own little name? Like that's my negative Nelly. Whatever it is, that's one kid actually told me. Let's work on the stumbler and let's figure out how to just keep working on it until you no longer make that into a mistake. You've got it. And then when you practiced and played the, played the, the whole piece, I never worried about the mistake because I got it. So yeah. when your child says... I can't get this right. You say, yet, honey, you can't get right yet. Mm -hmm. uh, Mama, I didn't get a hundred percent. Well, you're, but you're almost there. It's mm -hmm. you reframe it. You help the child realize what's the one thing that's getting in your way. And what are you worried about most? Your one little stumbler. And as a result, it's like a real good coach, a real good coach. What they do is they don't say you blew it. You are, you never going to get this right. They said, let's review the video. Let's mm -hmm. review the one spot you did wrong. Oh, it's your foot. Let's move your foot another way. Now you're going to get the kick, just like mm -hmm. Mrs. Thompson. Let's find the one stumbler. Now you got it right. Yeah, don't you call them opportunities in the book? Yes, I love opportunities. <laughs> you can call it What's My Opportunity. Or there's a fabulous book we used to read our kids when they were little by Remy Charlotte. It's called, uh, called Fortunately. And mm -hmm. what Ned would say is, Every page was an unfortunate. One day, he Ned got invited to a party that was in Florida, um, and he was so excited because it was a birthday party. The next page is an unfortunate. But unfortunately, he was in Florida, and the party was in New York. But fortunately, so what you do when you read that book to your kid is you call it, so what's your fortunate going to be? You can call it your opportunity. You can call it your fortunate. What's your stumbler? How are you going to turn it in, flip it around? But the bottom line is you make mistakes, learning opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I also love you got, cause I just, it's a simple little phrase and um, you say stress, stress the strengths, you know, focus yeah. on the strengths, stress the strengths. Um, one thing you say that is like become my mantra as a parenting coach, although I get a lot of pushback from it. And that's what I want to talk about is you say a few times in the book, never do for a child what they can do for themselves. Yeah. And I've been coaching parents for years. In fact, my husband and I talked about that last night because we talked about like when our kids were old enough to make their lunches for school, they made their lunches when they, you know, and, and some of that was because we were busy too. But a lot of that was, I did, I definitely, I wanted them to go to college and know how to balance a checkbook and know how to do their laundry, you know? Um, and we're a family and we need to all contribute and be a community and help. But I, find this so challenging for parents and some of it is they say well like I like doing all these things for my kids oh well, or, yes it's yeah easier. they're not gonna make the, bed, <laughs> the bed the way I want them to make it or they're not going to do it the way I want them to do it and so how can we really tell parents that it's so much more beneficial if they let the kids do it and that, yeah. that by doing it they are rescuing all the time and disabling really disabling is exactly the word. I think the, the first thing is recognizing what you're doing. If you keep enabling and doing it, you are robbing your child of resilience because yeah. a thriver is always the kid who goes, it's okay. I got this. And that comes from experiences and practice. It doesn't have to be perfect, but I got this. If he always is assuming that somebody's going to rescue helicopter lawnmower it over, what begins to happen is the kid just waits and his confidence level goes tanking because the first mm -hmm. message is, I guess it's not good enough because mom's in there doing it for me. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's the first thing is you're robbing your kid. Second thing is realizing it's a, every single skill set. I don't care if it's making the bed to setting the table to writing down your assignments. Yeah, you're going to get them wrong. But here's what you do at the beginning. You take any skill and maybe it's a skill a week or a skill a month. Mm -hmm. What's a, one more skill that this month my kid needs to be a better human being to be able to thrive on his own? And then what you do is you identify it. Number two is you begin by showing your child how to do it. Okay, making the bed. Watch mommy. I'm going to show you how to do making the bed. Number mm -hmm. two is the next thing is you do it together. Now, let's do it at the same time together. That's your great time to be able to correct. No, yeah. it goes under like this, under. Then the third mm -hmm. thing is you watch. Don't do it. Watch because you've got one final moment to make any correction. Once you go, okay, he's got it. Now you step back and never do for your kid what your kid can do for yourself because you've taught him. And what you're now doing is empowering him to become more self-driven. Yeah. 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 Because you say, I loved this quote too. You say thrivers are always self-directed. Yeah. It's that self-directed piece. And once we realize that, in all fairness, we do all this stuff because we love our kids. And frankly, it's easier to do it. I'll do it myself because it's faster. But yeah. in the end, it's that what's the long haul thing? Every piece of scientific research says the commonality of a thriver is that they are self-directed. Doesn't mean you're giving them the car keys at age three. It's all age appropriate. It doesn't mean you're allowing them to have full blank of the checking account, but it's mm -hmm. slow little gradual steps along the way until they can do it without you. And by the way, for those of you who are listening and thinking about buying the book, I want to tell you one more thing. You do that. So um, Dr. Borba gives really practical, concrete ways that you can teach all seven of these characteristics in, in really digestible ways. But what you also do is you have this little key that you, oh. you say, this one's for teens, this one's for elementary. You, you put like where to do it age appropriately, which was so great. Oh, good. Thank you. I was trying to actually a lot of this format of this book came from parents. I said, what do you want a really good parenting book to look like? And one of them is a cookbook. I want to be able to flip through it and find out what it is. At the beginning of it, parents also say, in fact, I did this with Dr. Phil on a family that was a mom and daughter that were really struggling together. We did the core asset survey. Uh, at the beginning, mm -hmm. so that the mom figure out what your children's strengths are. What is she good at? What drives her? What's her learning styles, her interests? And there's a four page document that it'll take you a while. You don't have to do it at one haul. But many parents said that's the single most valuable thing because it helps them begin to know that's who my kid is, not what, who. Now I'm going to use the rest of my parenting based on that who. And it's not necessarily what you love. One dad told me, <laughs> Oh, I love this dad. He said, my kid was driving me nuts because all at middle school he was talking about was wolves. Wolves, yeah. <laughs> wolves, 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 wolves. What kid talks about wolves? Well, he started talking about him so much and he told me he even dreamt about him. I said, okay, I'm going to take him to a park, a national park, and I'm going to have him take a moment to just talk to a park ranger. But when I was there, I'm so glad I did because I was blown away. I had never understood the depth of knowledge my kid had on wolves. He was politely correcting the park ranger about wolves. That was my moment that said, stop driving him into law. The kid needs to go into biology because mm -hmm. I'm pushing my kid in the wrong direction and against his grain. 
Yeah, that was my kid, my my environmental scientist. Yeah, he the styrofoam kid. Oh gosh, yeah. that's wonderful. But he was obsessed with prehistoric mammals as like a preschooler, and he would go yeah. to these museums and again politely correct the docent sometimes because politely I mean correct. he was obsessed. And I think as parents, what we have to do is you know, and and you say this in so many ways, and all of the people doing this kind of work are saying we have to embrace the kid that we have, not try to make this resume of a kid, you know, not who we want them to be, but who they are. And I love that story about the wolf dad, because he finally said, okay, not who do I want my kid to be? Not that I want my kid to be a baseball player or whatever, but this is who he is. And I'm going to join him there. You know? Uh, Oh, I love that. I just was smiling and, he said it took me a while, but man, did I realize I blew it. <laughs> but what a great way. And that's what we all do as parents. We're all going to yeah. blow it. But the yeah. moment is, okay, so what am I going to do differently? We said that to our kids. So what are you going to do differently? What's your opportunity? All of this is the same for us. So what's our opportunity to get on board? I think we're at an unprecedented moment that we need to reset our parenting. We've gone through yeah. an extraordinary time of uncertainty. We do know that, yeah, it's a pandemic, but what else is coming down the plate? It is an uncertain world. And are we preparing our kids for an uncertain world? Uncertainty creates stress, but predictability and protective buffers, which are all these things we're talking about, actually reduce the stress and help our kids go Okay, here's what I'm going to do differently. Here's how I'm yeah. going to go. I got this, mom. I'm okay. We do a great job when our kids are two. Yeah. You got this, sweetie pie. But we need to say a lot more, you got this, honey, to our children as they get older. Yeah, yeah. And and they have to they they have to learn how to pivot. And you know, that is one of the things so many parents are very concerned about, you know, the long-term effects of this year on their kid. But in a way, this was a year that kids had to learn perseverance. They had to learn curiosity. They had to be adaptable. And I think those skills are really going to help them move forward. Um, one of the things I want to touch on before we run out of time is self-control. You state uh, that the research indicates that self-control is twice as important as intelligence in predicting academic achievement, which I think a lot of parents will be surprised about that. Although that's what we really see this year, because the kids that are doing this year have the self-control because they're getting their stuff done. But, But what I'm really interested in and what I think parents will be is what are the factors that are hindering self-control? Uh, first of all, each one of the strengths you'll notice in the book has three skills that are teachable. So when you look at self-control, one of the things that we fail to realize, because we always want the kid to cope, take the breath, take the breath, take the breath. But the first step is, can you focus? Can you focus? Can you attend to a task long enough? So without that attending to a task long enough, that's why when you look at that study, it's twice as lo- as much that in terms of yeah. achievement, self-control. Okay. What they did is a longitudinal study in Dunedin that discovered that. They were looking at cohorts of children for 40 years and studied the same kids. And one of the things they discovered way back when is why some kids, remember that study about the marshmallow, uh, the four-year-old, oh, yeah. who ate the marshmallow and who didn't when they were four? When uh, Michelle kept watching that later on in life, it was because he said, for 40 years, I've analyzed this wrong. I thought the kids had a good attention span at age four. And now what I realized is the reason that they could 
wait and not eat the marshmallow is their moms had taught them waiting games. That's why they could focus. What's oh, yeah. a waiting game? He said, well, mommy's on the phone right now. So you just tie your shoe three times. And when you get done tying your shoe, mommy will get off the phone. I was in the bathroom waiting in a line of Disney before the pandemic. And I remember um, we were all, you know, women's bathrooms. They're just like yeah. a wait forever. And this poor little four-year-old comes running in, looks at the line, and you could just see distress. And the mom said, that's okay, sweetie pie, just sing the waiting song. Every mother turned to her like, what the heck is the waiting song? And the kids started singing happy birthday three times. Mm. Perfect. So first is we got to stretch our kids' ability to wait. Second thing we do wrong is that we assume that it's inbred and they got it. Second thing is our expectations are too high. So think of a rubber band. Think of a rubber band right now and what's your kid's current attention span and it's all over the plate. But but look at it and say, okay, oh, he can wait by himself for five minutes or three seconds. Now stretch him from three seconds or five minutes like a rubber band. You gently stretch without snapping it. If your expectations are too high, he blows it. Too low, he goes to curtail. Sleep, we forget. Sleep mm -hmm. is a huge yeah, interactor in terms of self-control. All of us are on edge because we're not sleeping as well. And so we're a little more irritable. Video games. If you keep playing that video game over and over and over again, what happens is there's some video games, let me tell you, that are help your kid become creative. But if you keep looking at nothing more than a screen or a TV or a computer, and it's right before you go to sleep, you're not going to sleep. Kids who say, don't worry, mom, I can multitask. All of the research says, no, you can't. Not when you're doing your homework and you're trying to go from the text to the video game to the homework. Those are all curtailers of, of self-control. The final one is we realize now that we're not teaching our kids how to cope or we're waiting until the kid is in the exorcism mode. <laughs> He's flailing all over, the, all over the place and then we're telling him to calm down. Mm -hmm. You know that we can teach our kids First, we got to figure out what their stress signs are and we got to help them. Yeah, yeah, it looks like you're getting irritable. Don't wait until the kid's in full meltdown to say, let's learn self-control because he's not going to cognitively focus. There's dozens of ways in that chapter to teach self-control. But the first thing is we got to look at what's curtailing it and then yeah. correct those until we get to that. Now, here's what we can do to teach. Yeah, yeah. I see that self-control, you know, not only in kids, but I'm seeing it in young adults in relationships. You know, they go from zero to 60, you know, they're go on a date and then they're living together and they're not taking the time to fully explore their relationship and then they crash and burn. And yeah, we see this a lot with our kids too. Um, but I think if you don't get that in childhood, again, it kind of translates into adult relationships as well. And the workplace, because they're seeing yeah. the same thing in the workplace. In fact, it's amazing to me on how many employers from Fortune 500 companies are doing empathy training and self-control training because yeah. the, in, the incoming employee set is so low in it. Yeah. There's so many things to do. I'd say the first thing is start with, there's a, a quick little assessment at the beginning of the book where you can figure out which of your, of those seven strengths is your children high or low in. And yeah. Don't go, oh my God, I immediately have to go fix the kid. Maybe yeah. what you do instead is start with a strength. Let yeah. the child know you're aware that that's their strength. Now their confidence mm -hmm. is going to bloom. 
And now yeah. you can teach if the self-control is low. Now let's do it as a family. Not because Ned's yeah. got the problem. Ned's going to work on it. Let's all do yeah. it as a family because you're so much better off learning one little self-control strategy together um, so that he sees it and he's more likely to copy it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I tell my parents in my practice is to give value-laden praise. And it's really, these are these are the things I'm telling them to praise. Like instead of saying, you know, oh, you did so well on that test, to say, oh, I saw how you managed your time and you thought of different ways to study and you really, you know, put in the effort and that a lot of parents, I think, because it's quick and easy, we just kind of say the easy kind of praise, but to really step back before you praise your child and think about praising these values and these characteristics, because what we praise is what we're going to see more of with our kids. Exactly. And, you know, the fascinating thing is when you get into the self-confidence chapter, you're going to yeah. see that one of the things we're doing wrong is exactly what you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. Each chapter starts with here's the three things that are taking it down that we too often do unknowingly. And yeah. one of them is we praise randomly thinking right. it's going to enhance our kids' self-esteem when in reality it enhances narcissism. It doesn't yeah. enhance their self-esteem. And the simplest way to change that is do the value-laden praise and use the word because in your praise. Yeah, I yeah. really love that you are because. And as soon as yeah. you do because, it takes it up a notch and the kid's going to go, oh, that's what she likes. So good to say what you get and yeah. praise the end product. But how often we don't say what you do that was kind. Oh, thank you. Your teacher told me what a great thing you did today. Yes. I'm so proud yes. of the kindness or the caring or the gratitude or whatever. Those are the things that just nurture our children from the inside out. Yeah, I wish I knew that you know, 24 years ago. Everything's an I wish, isn't it? You know, we talked about at the beginning before I hit record how you do get better with each child in a way because, you know, I know with my third, um, who's a dancer, I say, I loved watching you dance or uh, you've worked so hard instead of just praising the final performance because you can't always control the final performance. Sometimes the stage is slippery. Sometimes your ballet slipper falls off the heel or, you know, you can't always control all that, but she can control how hard she works. And, you know, and so, but I wish I knew that the first time around because I probably well. said to my oldest, too many times like good job on the home run good job. but the other thing is I love when you said I love watching you dance mm-hmm. every kid said the, the thing that I worry about most is disappointing my mom yeah. so that they wait for us to tell them oh I'm so proud of you that you got a hundred percent but we don't take the moment to say oh I loved how hard you worked I love yeah. that you watching you dance I love watching you draw because you look so joyous when you do. Oh, gosh, those are wonderful kinds of moments. But, you know, we, we, when we know more, we do better, right? That's, oh, that's exactly. Better. Yes, my Angelou says that. And that's, that's what, you know, my goal of this whole podcast is that parents and anybody can just do a little bit better in their relationships. I have one more question for you if you have time. Yes. Yes. Um, because I really loved this and it's not something I had thought about before. Um, it's about changing your questions from what questions to why questions. I forget which chapter it is, but you talk about kind of changing the way we ask our kids questions. 
I think one of the things that's fascinating, I mean, that simple little thing, can you imagine just that simple little thing, a way we ask questions has been research-based, every single one of these items. So if you always ask your kid, um, what is it you want to do? Um, what do you want to do next? How great if you switch it and go, why do you love that? Yeah. What, why are you so happy when you're doing that? You'll find it in, in more of an inner dialogue that helps your child uh, process it of recognizing that you see the joy in your child, but also it'll help you get back to who my child is. Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. whole thing. Focus on the yeah. who, not the what, and you'll drive the passion up. You'll drive the hope up. You'll drive the, the joy up. And your kid mm -hmm. also has more chance to have, this is what gives my life meaning. That's yeah. a high correlation to mental health. And if we just get back to the stat we started with, that one in five American kids is going to suffer from a mental health disorder. That was prior to the pandemic. Imagine what that yeah. stat is now. Yeah. It just yeah. means that simple little things that we do, whatever we do from listening to today, simple little things or any idea from thrivers is going to make an just that ordinary thing can make an extraordinary difference on your child's life. That's how yeah. powerful we are as parents. Yeah. And I think it feels so overwhelming to parents. Like I don't have time to do one more thing, but I want to encourage parents who are listening that when you do these things, you actually have more time because you're not putting out the big fires. Yes. yes. You know? Oh, that's exactly it. I think the bottom that we forget is that we're thinking about all of this in terms of our kid and how they're thriving. But there's a little selfish note to this. It's also going to improve your relationship with your child. So it's going to be so much more loving, so much more calm, so much more driven by, oh, and that's going to help you as well. Because our kids are picking up. We don't yeah. have to say a thing. Our stress is spilling over to our kids. Our worries spill over. And it just, we have this one moment to get this turned around, get it right, because I think we're all realizing our kids need something more. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a dream come true. It's really been delightful. Aww. You are brilliant and energetic, and I can just see the passion for what you do. It comes through. And I just want to tell our listeners that your book, Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine, is available everywhere, and they can order it or get it at their local bookstore. And if people want to learn more and follow you, where can they find you on social oh, media? Yeah, thank you for that. I'm Michelle Borba with a 1L. I'm a 1L Michelle. My last name, Borba, rhymes with Zorba. So it's MichelleBorba.com. My website has dozens of things. Thrivers is also, I recorded it in audio, so you can get it in audio. It's also in digital. I think it's even 40% off right now on Amazon. It's just amazing. But there's also book club read-alouds. If you are in, I think the other thing we're doing wrong is that we're trying to do this by ourselves and it's so lonely. Get one other mom. Get Pass it on to the grandma. Pass it on so we're reading this together. Um, or just talking about it together, you're always going to be better off because it's going to open up your heart a little more and go, she's on the same page as me. I agree. I loved, you know, having that group of moms who we had all read the same books and we could all support one another. And then we kind of yeah. knew what to expect. And um, it was good for our girls too, you know, because they sure knew is. that friends' moms were kind of all on the same page. Sure. That's exactly it. And what a great sense of relief. So, you know, you're yeah. not alone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I might, I might 
uh, try to reach out when 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 you're a little less busy with this to get you back on and talk about unselfie because that one's so. Oh, good I'd love too. to do that. I would love to. I love talking yeah. to you about anything, way, shape, and form. I'm not necessarily going to write another book in order to do it, but if you want to <laughs> talk about unselfie, <laughs> yeah, I know authors love to talk about their latest projects. But um, since I didn't have a podcast back then, I might need to have you on there. But thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate oh, you are it. So welcome. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Hopefully, you've heard something that will help you as you continue to navigate the connections in your everyday relationships. If you'd like to connect with me on Instagram, you can follow me at Dr. Kim Swales or check out my website, www.kimswales.com. I'd also love if you would click subscribe and leave a positive review or a five-star rating for the podcast, as well as share it with your friends and family. The material in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you are in need of medical or psychological counsel, please seek a licensed professional in your area. This episode was edited and produced by Sonia Kerrigan.